Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast highlights some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs along the border. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! In this episode, we're going to talk about faithfulness. We will be interviewing Mary Bull, who is the house coordinator at Annunciation House, which offers hospitality to migrants and refugees in El Paso, Texas. Stay tuned for that, but first let's talk about some shining examples of faithfulness in our own life and ministry. Uh, Some of you might recall or maybe you've seen the news that last year, last spring, two Jesuits were killed in in Mexico, and they were were living in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, and these two Jesuits were older Jesuits. Javier Campos was 79, and Joaquin Mora was, was 81. And they really dedicated themselves to working with the indigenous population in, in a small town in the, uh, the Tarahumara Mountains. And uh, we received a notification of, of their death as we were making our way to Reynosa one morning. That's right. It was a bit of a surprise, you know, to wake up in the morning and have people sharing this news with you that two of our Jesuit brothers had been shot and killed. And of course, our first reaction was was just sadness at this, at this tragedy. Uh, two fellow Jesuit priests working with the poor in this rural community with this indigenous population in the mountains and, and being shot and killed in their church that they work and minister at. So I think it hit both of us pretty pretty hard just hearing the news at first. And then as as we were sitting there and, and, and kind of scrolling our feed and looking at some of these articles, I, I turned to Louie and I said, uh, you know, we might, might want to let our families know we're okay, because all the headlines were saying was two Jesuit priests murdered in northern Mexico. And it was like, that that could be the two of us. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, it's certainly a heavy thing to read. And it's, you know, it's a very uh, unsettling thing to to feel the closeness of uh, of that reality, to know that we're heading into Mexico at the same time, and also to be aware of our own surroundings, that that we hadn't really faced any violence or or any any sort of displays of of threats towards us, and at the same time, just acknowledging that yeah, that is a part of 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 working where we work. And Northern Mexico was a very generous term that those headlines used too. So uh, we, we did get some contacts from uh, other people just reaching out to make sure we were okay. Uh, and mostly eventually just sort of helping us to deal with, with the reality. You know, how are you doing with this kind of news? Yeah, it was. It's very tough to hear that kind of news. You think about their situation and, and what happened, 
And we, of course, work, you know, Louis and I are constantly in conversation about are we making good decisions for our own safety and how are we uh, doing our ministry in the best way that we that we can to not put ourselves or anyone else at any serious risk. And we feel very good about the choices that we've made around that. But in a situation like this, it's a time to pause and say, okay, are we in any sort of danger? It emerged very quickly in this story that this was not a targeted killing. It was not like someone came in trying to kill Jesuit priests, for example, which might have felt more uh, threatening as fellow Jesuit priests. It was more that uh, there was an, a chance encounter that happened at this church and resulted in the death of these two Jesuits, uh, which reveals more than anything to us, I think, just the general state of violence that people can often be living with and encounter every day. And we certainly want to hold up Fathers Javier and Joaquin for their faithfulness in this situation. They they lived in a very violent area in the Tarahumara where there's a lot of uh, a lot of threats of danger and violence constantly. There's a lot of cartel activity in that area, and yet they remained faithful to their ministry. They stayed there for decades, uh, remaining at this parish, both of them, you know, at 79 and 81 years old, I don't think anyone would have faulted them for saying, I'm slowing down, I'd rather move into uh, an infirmary community or something like that, where I don't have as much uh, responsibility and can kind of take care of myself a little bit, not to mention the violence that's existing in this area that I live. And yet they never made any petitions for that. They continued to remain dedicated and passionate. And some of the testimonies we've heard from Mexican Jesuits and others about them reveal and speak to their great faithfulness to their mission. And so after hearing this news, we've, we talked in the car just about, you know, should we be going? Should we turn around? And even the sisters, we were in touch with them about going to Casa del Migrante, and they, they, were, they were asking us whether we were coming or not. And we ended up deciding to go. So we arrived at Casa del Migrante. And then uh, r- soon after arriving, we were talking to Sister Edith, Sister Edith, Edith Garrido, who is a Mexican daughter of charity, who's probably in her late 80s, maybe maybe even 90s. She's very old. She's not that old. <laughs> she's she's ancient. ancient. She's like she's, 70 years old. She's old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good judge of age. <laughs> that's, that's clear. <laughs> but it turns out that she knew the two Jesuits personally, that she had worked with Father Javier and, and Father Joaquin in her work with migrants just throughout her time. And she was connected with them and good friends with them. And so her just seeing her response, her her grief at hearing this news and also just listening to her testimony about their lives um, was really impactful that that she had been affected so deeply by this, not just because they're involved in the same work in the same way that we were affected by it, but that uh, they were friends of hers. And it, it really shows like how how those those friendships and relationships develop and deepen when you're in this kind of world as well, you know the ministry of being a religious uh, in a dangerous situation or on the border in a tense space uh, definitely shows that, that uh, what can come of that. And at the same time, we, we wanted to accompany her in her grief and, and in her sorrow at the death of her friends. And it was nice that, you know, we come and visit Casa del Migrante and celebrate Mass there. And so we were able to offer our Mass for them and make it a, an intentional part of our prayer that day. Not only to speak about Fathers Javier and Joaquin and their own faithfulness, but we we can talk about Sister Edith as well, who is a great example to us of faithfulness in mission. She's the longest tenured of the Daughters of Charity who work at Casa del Migrante. 
She's been there for seven years, uh, but her entire life has been marked by ministry to service of the poor in various places throughout Mexico. And she's she's uh, a very she's a force to be reckoned with at Casa del Migrante. You know, we have perfect attendance at our masses there, and Sister Edith is a large part of the reason why. Because we set out all the chairs as they're preparing the altar and ambo in this outdoor courtyard, and Sister Edith is going around and rounding up everyone to come and sit and participate in our mass. And who's going to say no to a 90-year-old nun? She's I mean. <laughs> 90 years old. <laughs> All right. She's pretty close. <laughs> but how can you say no to sister? How could you, you can't say no to her. You can't, you can't say no to her. <laughs> she's very persuasive and insistent. And, uh, you know, one thing, uh, just one story about her. When she went out of town for her retreat for a little while, and uh, I, I was talking with um, – one of the other sisters there, and and she had this great story about Sister Edith, and and she ended up telling Sister Edith later. But it was just she was recounting that she was talking to one of the women, and uh, she looked a little down. This woman at the at the shelter, and she said, "Well, why are you so down? What's going on?" She goes, "Well, everything's okay. It's just, it's just right now. Sister Edith is gone. She's on retreat, and it's like the heart of this place is gone." You know, it's like the heart is missing. And what a, you know, what a beautiful thing to say about somebody, you know, what a beautiful thing to say about this, this woman who really animates the people and keeps things ordered and keeps things controlled and, and that she's the heart. She's, she's, you know, she's, she's the source of, of, uh, really the presence of God. I mean, in so many ways, that's such a statement of like, this is somebody who, who shines out God's presence in the, in the midst of the people. So anyway, when, when the other sister was telling, uh, sister Edith about this, she was like, oh no, no, you know, and like changed the subject and kind of tried to move on. And then sister Patricia was like, no, I want you to hear this. This woman said that you are the heart of this place. And when you were gone, it was like the heart was missing. And Sister Edith just kind of took that in and accepted it and kind of got a little emotional and then moved on. You know, she's that kind of woman. Like, she'll listen. She'll she'll take the compliment. But there's plenty of work to be done. So. That's right. That's right. And there always is more work to be done. But what a what a great sign of her faithfulness and dedication there. And it's so true. I mean, we see it. We see it every day that we go, and she interacts so well with all the migrants, from the small little kids to pregnant women to other people who are there uh, passing through and staying at Casa del Migrante. It's not uncommon that she's surrounded by two or three of the children that are the most rambunctious and usually causing the most trouble, and she'll pull up a seat and insist that they sit right next to there. And again, if you're sitting next to Sister Edith, you're going to be on your best behavior. There's just no other kind of behavior that's going to do. That's right. And we're grateful to her for her example that she's she's willing to offer herself in this way. You know, when we talk about uh, the the deaths of the Jesuits in Mexico, uh, there was there was sort of a time where people were like, they're martyrs, you know, to say that they're martyrs right away and to say that they're killed for their faith. Well, in a way they were in the sense that their faith is what led them to dedicate themselves to the poor. Their faith is what led them to remain even in a dangerous situation. And although they may not have been asked, are you Christian?, before they were shot, they certainly were martyrs in, in the sense that they had already sacrificed themselves for the good of others. And we see that every day here on the border. We see that in, in the testimonies of so many people, these, these living martyrs among us that, that give of themselves, give of their blood, sweat, and tears for the good of others. And, and to have those examples is, 
is a great inspiration to continue in this kind of work and, and to continue to dedicate ourselves to those who are in, in greatest need. These examples are great inspiration for us as we are really just starting off in ministry ourselves, uh, you know, just in our second year of priesthood. Great examples for us to look to. On today's episode, we have another great example that we look to, Mary Bull, who works at Annunciation House in El Paso. She's been there for 10 years uh, and has some great insights to share from her experiences there. So uh, we hope you enjoy this interview. Stay tuned for our interview with Mary Bull from Annunciation House. Today, we're excited to welcome on this episode, Mary Bull, the house coordinator at Annunciation House in El Paso, Texas, where she's been for the past 10 years, and who we got to meet and talk with during our visit in March to El Paso. Good to have you with us, Mary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Maybe for the, maybe for the first question, to get things started, you could tell us a little bit about what first brought you to El Paso, Texas, and how did you get involved at Annunciation House? Yeah, so, and I studied sociology in the university, and that was from 2008 till 2012. Um, and uh, learning about different social justice issues, um, I really wanted to also go and see other places than just Michigan. Um, and so I went on various alternative break trips, and one of them was to El Paso. And I hadn't really had any experience or like like education on immigration or anything like that but going down I really I learned a lot uh, a few things that we did we talked with a legal aid office about the challenges asylum seekers face as well as the farm worker center um, where farm workers who come and pick you know our vegetables stay it's a pretty, pretty humble place, um, as well as touring Annunciation House. I think in my time, the, the Farm Workers Center really hit home. And, and for the last uh, year that I was at university, I actually studied more about fair trade and how we can create better or just systems to hopefully prevent people from having to come and migrate. Um, but what I really wanted to do after I, I graduated is I wanted to, to, to volunteer. And so I was looking into other programs like Peace Corps, AmeriCorps. But after I visited an Unchasing House, it was a no-brainer. I really wanted to learn Spanish. I'd been studying Spanish, but it's not the same if, if you don't go and actually use it. And so I decided I was going to apply and go right after I graduated. And so May 2012, I um, graduated you know, finished my job and then got on a, a Greyhound bus to El Paso. It was actually the first time I'd moved out of my parents' home as well as traveled on my own. So it was a very big step. And I think that probably played a part in um, kind of where I am today, like being able to to be independent and kind of take risks, I guess, and, and following my life passion whatever that is. And um, yeah, kind of making my own decisions. So I stayed for a year and then I decided to stay for another year. And then after that second year, I took like a 10 week 
break and traveled the country, I everyone asked, you know, what, how long are you going to be here? What are you going to do after this? And I didn't really have a good answer. I had some ideas. And as I was thinking about what I was doing, what options I could have, where I could live outside of Michigan, I I realized that I really liked what I did in El Paso. I really liked working at the shelter. I really liked my job as house coordinator. And if I were to leave, that's probably what kind of job I would want to get and maybe study social work. And I realized, why should I go into debt and like just kind of go into the unknown when I'm already doing what I want to do and I'm happy doing it. So I kind of put aside everyone's questions about what do you do? What are you going to do with your life? And said, this is it, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and so far so good. Um, you know, I always, I leave the door open if, if I need to change or need to move or this doesn't work anymore, but it hasn't, it hasn't changed. Here I am 10, 10 years later. You know, Mary, just listening to you, 10 years of work at Annunciation House, 10 years of, of something that seems to have really captured your heart. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit about Annunciation House. What's the system like? What happens? You know, just describe for people what's going on there. Yeah. So even I think starting with like a history really helps give you give you the understanding of of why like the deep meaning of what we actually do day to day um Anantisha started almost 45 years ago in February it'll, it'll be 45 years with a group of young adults who um were Catholic you know they were meeting together trying to figure out what is life about like what is God calling us to do um and in in those in those discussions they talked about liberation theology and how God is first and foremost closest with the poor and identifies with the poor. And so one of their realizations is they needed to understand what it was like to be poor or to be closer to the poor so they can understand what what God is asking of them. And so five of them um, decided to quit their jobs and um, give up their material possessions and they moved into the second floor of the building Annunciation House. And so that was where it, it began. They just, they had no idea what they were doing at this building. Um, but they said, okay, we're gonna start looking this, like searching the streets, like talking to people, what what is needed right now? Like what, what do the poor in El Paso need and who are the poor in El Paso? So they were doing that. And one day they got a phone call from a local um, citizen asking, can they take in a teenager? who had nowhere to go, none of the shelters at the time would take him in. And they said yes. And so in that, they decided they were going to be a shelter and give shelter to people. And so they began taking um, more and more people in. Of course, not having resources for themselves, they started um, referring people to other places like housing, other shelters, food banks, and stuff like that. And there was always this specific group of people that would come back and say, you know, where you sent me, they wouldn't help me. And the volunteers would say, you know, why, like, what, what did they say? And they said, pues, no tengo papeles, like, I don't have papers. So the volunteers at the time realized the population that was the poorest of the poor that weren't being served in El Paso were the undocumented migrant. And so 
in those decisions, and that was within like the first few years of Annunciation House's existence, they decided that our main mission would be to serve the poor in El Paso and of my poor in migration. And so it, knowing the history of Annunciation House is is one to serve the poor. So like what we do day to day, but also to uh, understand what our role is in life. Like what is our purpose? And like, that's a huge aspect to what we're doing. Cause not every job that we take is, you know, saying, okay, this is, this is my, my life. This is like my, my vocation. And I think Annunciation House serves that purpose. And I think for some of us, it is our vocation. One of the things that uh, impressed me visiting El Paso back in March, you know, we've only been down here in the Rio Grande Valley for about a year, was seeing how established some of these organizations were. I mean, 45 years of history of Annunciation. I mean, you yourself have been there for 10 years. When we got down here to the Valley, you'd, you'd meet some people working in migration. They're like, oh, you guys, you know, you guys are just, just arriving. I've been working in this since 2018. And at, and at first I was like, 2018, I was like, that's like only three or four years ago. But now that I've been here a year, I'm like, oh my gosh, since 2018, just just because things change, things evolve so rapidly. And so it just takes a lot out of you, these these frequent shifts and chains, you know, changes. You know, you're talking about right now the profile of the typical migrant that you're getting, but how much that that can change and even just the volume of them or the needs that they bring, um, those who don't have a sponsor, those who have a sponsor, all of that, this constantly evolving situation, which I'm appreciating more and more the longer I'm here at the border. It's like we've been here maybe 15, 16 months or so, and it's like been maybe three totally different phases that look very different. So, gosh, when I think about you spending 10 years uh, in this in this work, I just get such an I have such an appreciation for it. And so my question related to that is, where do you get the strength and the energy? What gives you the the joy and encouragement? to continue amid a very difficult and challenging situation that's constantly evolving? Yeah, I honestly get most of my strength from the people themselves, um, knowing that most, almost all of them come from just a place significantly worse than I've ever seen, um, whether that's because of economic poverty, um, not having enough food to feed their family, or... Um, the violence that they experience just with trying to work or trying to go to school and they have to be worried about someone being kidnapped or um, held for ransom. And so knowing that their, their, their stories are a lot more difficult than, than my own, but then seeing their resilience, seeing their, their desire to live and to prosper and, and they have hopes that, you know, that gives me the strength to continue to say, look, like, this isn't, you know, my, what I'm doing is like, you know, easy compared to what they have in front of them. And so um, I really appreciate being able to be a part of that. Uh, hopefully, a, a change that is person by person, right, like, like helping provide um, hope and, and community to, to every individual, eventually will change the world in, in general. I mean, it, it'd take a very long time, but um, I'm playing my part. When, uh, when you think about your work and, and think about, you know, how the people there on the ground that you're encountering every day, how they are the ones that give you hope and encourage you to keep going, is, is there any 
story or any encounter that comes to mind uh, that you'd like to hold up of, of, of someone who, who really was that encouragement for you just based off of, of the courage that they had and, and, and the, the grace that they have been able to conduct themselves with through, through some really challenging circumstances? Yeah, um, I was thinking about that before our call. And I mean, there's so many, but I do have one person on my mind right now who actually just reached out to me a couple of days ago. Um, she's a lady from El Salvador. She has a husband and a six-year-old child. When they were in El Salvador, I mean, they had like a decent life, like a good job. And the husband decided to start his own business, um, just a corner store type of like selling items or whatever. And in El Salvador and in most of Central America, Mexico, when you start a business, a lot of the times the cartels are running that business, like <laughs> running the area. So if they say, you know, we want a quota, like we want, you know, a hundred dollars a week or whatever, you know, that's going to happen. And so that started happening to them and it kept going up every couple of months until the point where they couldn't pay because they didn't even have the money to pay it, let alone to pay their own to eat. And so, you know, at one point the, the husband just said, you know, I can't like, it's not, I can't, I don't have the money. And after that happened, the cartels um, kidnapped their six-year-old boy and, and, and killed him. And, you know, they saw that was their warning that they are next, right? Like what, I mean, at that point, what's worse because they already have their child gone, but they decided, you know, their only option at that point was to go North. They had family up in, in the U S and in Virginia. And so, you know, her and her husband came North, um, came to the border. And of course, under title 42, the reality is it's, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to seek asylum normally quote you know quoting because of title 42 you can't present out of port of entry they tried but you know they were told no so you know they use a coyote they they use a smuggler and they were crossing and um the she's young i think she's 20 24 25 um now with the fence is as large as it is she um fell and broke her ankle and her um forgot what it was I think her tibia fibia and so she ended up at Annunciation House she didn't get sent back we've seen a lot of people um the past year and a half who've fallen from the fence and because of their injuries and how severe they are they don't get sent back under title 42 they get processed and released and so she was with us and we heard about her story and you know she was just yeah, she was just inconsolable most of the day. She was just crying. And her husband ended up getting caught and sent back to Mexico. And so she's with us. She she had her surgery. She actually needed two surgeries, but she's only she only had one uh, because of the swelling or whatever. So she had her surgery and then she found out she did eventually find out her husband made it. He made it through, went to Virginia. So she moved on. She left us. Um and after, because of just the limitations that Annunciation House has, um, a lot of the people who have these injuries, uh, we, we, I would say we average four people a week, and that's just the people who come to us um, with these fractures. Her story in particular, you know, she's so intelligent. She's so smart. She's, she would be such a great asset to our 
our country and she is but she can't do a whole lot if we can't support her in in her healing process and it's been almost a year and she's still not able to walk on her foot thanks for sharing that story it's just incredible the amount of obstacles a migrant faces a lot of times we think about the, the the challenges we can get a very narrow lens we think about the challenge of their life back home or maybe we think about the challenge of the journey sometimes and crossing the border Sometimes we lose sight of the journey that continues afterwards and the many challenges that continue to await them uh, based on their immigration status, their access to job and work. Healthcare in the United States is very expensive for any American. And so you imagine a migrant, some of the, some of the difficulties that they can face in that sense. Um, so it's good to keep those in mind and stories, I think, help to illuminate that. And part of the point of this this podcast, along with sharing those stories, is just trying to shed light on the reality and humanizing the reality on the border, uh, especially for people who are elsewhere in the country who maybe have an interest or passion for immigration or want to learn more. Um, and so we love to try to shed some light on that. So I wonder if, from your perspective, you know, you, you've spent 10 years working on the border. I'm sure you've had a lot of conversations with people back home in Michigan or elsewhere in the country. What What is it that you like to communicate to them about what's so what's critical to understand about the reality on the border. What's something that someone who hasn't spent time on the border uh, would would maybe have a misconception about that you'd want to correct, or just some insights that you'd want to offer them uh, from your perspective? Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about that question as well. In that, I think before this this past, um, I want to say like six months, like the issue on the border was very particularly border related um, in the sense that like, okay, you have a thousand people crossing a day and you do have to have these shelters um, resources help for them until they can move on, which for the most part, like a, a lot of people could move on within, you know, a few days. Sometimes people would stay like a month or two. I guess the question of what would people like need to know about the border while well, the border is everywhere you know like people cross they don't stay here it's very rare that they stay here the border is everywhere and, and just remembering that people are human beings who want an honest living you know i think that's such an essential 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 thing to understand about this reality is that that the pressures on the border the pressures of the reality right here you know right right on the border is a shared is a shared experience by the whole country, you know, that that this is not just something that happens right here. You know, this is something that that goes out into all all sectors of this country, all parts of this country. And and some places feel the pressure more than others, but uh, but still that you you cannot go to any city in the United States without encountering migrants, without encountering people who are in these situations, people who are looking for simple things like work and housing and healthcare, just like you're mentioning. And so it's not just, you know, it's not an isolated issue to these, to El Paso and Brownsville and Tijuana, but it is, it is an experience that the whole country is sharing. Annunciation. It's this great story in Scripture, such an important part of the gospel, where the angel Gabriel comes and visits Mary, this teenage girl, 
the small town of Nazareth in a remote corner of the giant Roman Empire, and, uh, you know, invites her to embrace a child to be born, you know, Jesus. Uh, I, won, uh, I was just wondering, as we were talking here, I, I don't know, what, what is the origin of the name, choosing the name Annunciation House for the organization? And you've talked a little bit about the, the roots in liberation theology that gave rise to Annunciation House. So just wondering, you know, d- does faith still inform the work that's done by Annunciation House, or how does faith personally uh, affect your own commitment to the mission and the work that you do? Yeah, so the first part, um, the our house was actually named because of Mother Teresa. Um, our director, Ruben Garcia, was in communication with Mother Teresa, and she was asking him about like different um, pro- a different project that she had, and and she wanted him to to kind of take lead and. And he had responded to one of her letters saying, you know, we actually just found we we were given this house. And so we're actually going to move forward with this new project that we have here in El Paso. And so I'm, I'm not going to be able to to help you with the project that you have. And, and her response was, um, well, I'm really I'm really glad that you have been able to get this this house and and that you'll be able to enunciate the poor. Um, and so giving this coming from this letter, I think was really inspirational for him and for, for the group of people who began the organization and just, they decided to use it as, as a namesake. Um, in terms of faith. Yeah. I think it's interesting because a lot of people will say, you know, cause we are a Catholic organization. Are all the volunteers religious or Catholic? And I would say, and this happens, this question happens frequently. And I would say probably only about half maybe are religious in a particular way. Um, but I would say all of us are spiritual. Um, we all have this deep desire to connect with human beings and to connect with ourselves through that, that there's some kind of greater power that is asking us or demanding of us to treat each other as we would like to be treated and um and I think there's a lot of a lot of things in the Catholic faith that um or a lot of stories in the Catholic faith that that speak to this like talking about um the good Samaritan who you know helps the person on the side of the street and when the priests and and the rabbis wouldn't um yeah like Jesus explaining you know when you help the least among us you're helping you're helping me and I think a lot of these stories and antidotes um that kind of are um connected with the catholic faith is what as things that we see in everyday life whether or not you're catholic um you know if I were in the same situation as as these people I would want and hope that someone would also help me the same way You've been in El Paso for 10 years. You've got an apartment there. I'm not going to ask you the question that you get all the time. How much longer do you think you're going to be at the Annunciation? <laughs> but I do just want to say, you know, if you're ever looking for a change of scenery, if you want to be a little closer to a beach like South Padre Island, let's say, just want you to know <laughs> that you are most welcome to come visit or make a little uh, border change and come uh, come to the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, no, I'd really love to. I've been to, 
I went to McAllen um, with like a group of other border shelter networks. Um, it was really cool, but I've never been to like the beach over there or Houston. I've never been to Houston. So it's definitely on my list of things to do. Great. Well, we welcome you with open arms. That's and, right. Uh, maybe a cooler full of uh, select beverages if you'd like. To. <laughs> All right. I'm down. But no, really, Mary, this has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for all that you've shared with us. Thank you for all that you've done and that you continue to do for migrants at the border there at Annunciation House and continue to be an advocate for those in great need. We thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Mary Bull for joining us. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next week on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos!